I learned the hard way. I did through my organizing work and advocacy work. I learned quite directly you have to prioritize caring for yourself. Your well being is just as purposeful as the organizing work that you are leading. Because if you aren't well, you can't organize. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the Glow Podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Yasmeen Mumby. She's an activist and artist from Baltimore City. We discuss her self-care journey into yoga and her work as a middle school social studies teacher, community organizer, law student, and audio documentarian, and how those experiences ultimately led her to creating Ahimsa, which is an audio memoir on yoga, wellness, and black lives in 2020. She shares how she navigated extreme stresses, surgeries, and temporary blindness, to name just a few. We also discussed her influential article, Amplify Black Voices, Yoga You Can Do Better, and how self-care is a critical component of activism and breaking down powers that perpetuate anti-Black racism. Dr. Mumby is inspiring, so stay tuned for a powerful discussion about addressing and overcoming obstacles in our society's path to well-being. In the show notes, I link to her meditations on GLOW, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Dr. Mumby. Hello. <laughs> so great to be here with you. I'm really happy to be here with you too. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for being here, and I'm glad we're finally doing this. I mean, this is something that I had mentioned when we first met and back then it was a potential podcast that was meant to launch at some point in the nebulous future. And here we are. We are in that nebulous future. So excited that it's come to fruition. So let's start with how we met. We first met through email. Our marketing team had reached out to you. Uh, they had reached out to a number of people that were following us in social media. And I believe Alexandra Brown or Alex Brown reached out to you. She's our social and content marketing strategist. And it was for a video that we were doing, Amplifying Black Voices. And afterwards, I emailed you to thank you and you replied back. And in your reply, you shared with me this amazing, inspiring project and in your email it was just oozing passion and excitement and I, I and our team wanted to be a part of it and so I definitely want to get to that in this discussion but I think a great place for us to start would be your background. You have a powerful and inspiring story and I ultimately want to get to what inspired you to teach middle school students and how that evolved into, or how those experiences led you to becoming a trained community organizer, evolving into your activism, how you then saw the need to be fluent in law, fluent in the languages that help construct and perpetuate systems and institutions of power and inequity. And I think there may be also a thread there with your Aunt Kay in terms of how we get through the narrative arc to from your childhood to your health journey to yoga. So I, 
I don't know if I'm artificially constructing this this narrative arc in a way that doesn't make sense, but uh, in my preparation and listening to previous interviews and, and some of your writing, I think there's some some nuggets there that I'd like to excavate with you. Oh yeah, thank you so much for first offering this space. Um, yeah, I come into this work really led by my curiosities and love of people and humanity. I became a social studies teacher right out of college in my hometown, Baltimore City, simply because I was sick of the way people kept talking about the school system. Um, like that's really what mostly gets me going is when I hear comments or um, hear of interactions that aren't purposeful or conducive to creating something differently that could benefit other people, I wonder, well, this, who's this person talking? Why don't they just get in it instead of being on the outside and talking about it? And so I, I finished school, college. I stayed in my hometown, went to college there, went to Hopkins. And I decided to be a social studies teacher in Baltimore City. And I was there. And in being there, I was super frustrated and overwhelmed. I wasn't the only one, only educator, only family member, only student with just the everyday day struggles of trying to provide a decent, adequate, enriching education in a school system that continues to be under-resourced. It's the way our structures are set up that do not provide sufficient funding to support schools in districts that have low wealth. And because of that, I found myself as a teacher constantly organizing with other like-minded teachers and policy folk and community organizers and community leaders around education funding for capital. So our buildings are crumbling. They're one of the oldest in the country in Baltimore City. They still are with folks who are also working on the front lines around operational funding. And in doing that, that just took over so much of my passions that I didn't intend to, but I was, I was asked, really, I was called by many folk in the community to do that full time, which was organize, community organize for more funding and resources for schools with parents, students, and teachers and school administrators. And I did that. And I found myself in my mid-20s, I can't make this stuff up, co-leading a citywide coalition focused on education, moving and leading a campaign to renovate and reconstruct school buildings to the tune of almost $1 billion. Yeah, that's growing up pretty fast. <laughs> uh, okay, so I found myself doing that during the day. And quickly I realized, uh-oh, in the middle of all this community organizing work, I'm, at, I'm in rooms across tables from people who are very fluent in law, lawyers, policy um, analysts. And so in addition to being comfortable working with people, you know, in church basements and classrooms and living rooms. I was like, oh, I need to also learn how to be, I need to learn their language. These people in these other rooms I've never really been in, these rooms of power that decide what our experiences are like in our classrooms, in our living rooms, in our places of, of worship, um, and just in our daily living spaces. And so I went to law school at night while running that campaign and uh, <laughs> it was amazing. That's, I mean, there was no time like the present. That's a lot. 
Yeah. My, my father, I remember my father saying, you know, yes, you know, there's time to do all these other things. You don't have to do them right now. And I turned to him and I said, daddy, when is there another time when we could secure a billion dollars to rebuild schools in Baltimore city? When is there another time? And where did that conviction come from? I mean, here you have a parent giving you the permission in the space to say, you know what, Let's, you could put that on pause. You would still be loved and a good person, successful, adequate. Where did that come from? Grief about widespread suffering in our city mm-hmm. that I witnessed. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm deeply emotional and empathetic and I've always been like that. Like when, when I see people suffering, I hurt too in my body. Like I feel that pain. Mm-hmm. I feel, I feel my body reacting to what I see as pain and I can't stand for it. Like it, it, it doesn't, I can't, it doesn't feel right in my body unless mm-hmm. I'm part of a solution or part of alleviating some of that if I can. And um, I realized that at a systemic level, we can do more than we have been doing. And it's going to take leaders who are comfortable stepping into that role. And I saw, I understood my purpose in that moment in relationship to so many other leaders who had stepped up as well and risked so much. Who was I to say, oh, it's okay. You all take the fall. and I'll just stop here because it's gotten really hard. You had influential role models around you. You listened to your body, your inner voice. You channeled that into meaning and purpose. And my father was a professor at the local university where I grew up in Montclair, New Jersey. He taught counseling psychology. And one year he provided weekly help at a middle school and then later at a a high school in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, He was helping historically underserved disenfranchised students. And I went with him a number of times to help and provide some tutoring. And this was late eighties, early nineties. And I can't even begin to identify with the pain that you just shared a moment ago, only to the extent that what I saw in terms of just in these students, is a deep absence of hope, of, of opportunity, of, of the potential of realizing one's potential, just a brutal, sad submission to kind of a a suffocating system, like a silencing of of voice. And saying the word voice, I think of of your Elephant Journal article, and I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit. At one point, you refer to the sunken place uh, from from the movie Get Out. And, And maybe we can get to that later. But I bring that up because my reaction to witnessing their pain and despair was to be sad about it, but not to do anything other than what I had mentioned. But, you know, instead to go back home and do my homework and my safe home filled with love, support and healthy meals. And that, you know, as I reflect back on how I felt about it back then and how I still think about it, you know, that was one of my many powerful childhood and early adolescent realizations or experiences of my white male privilege. And 
you chose to dedicate a large portion of your early adult life to addressing that suffering? You know, I went to school in many different settings. And I think my parents were doing that and also having, yeah, having the space to do that. And also, I guess I think the admissions folk who let me in and uh, didn't realize who was coming in. So <laughs> into these spaces of enormous wealth and privilege and very white centered. And I went to school with a lot of folk that uh, channeled the same separation from other suffering. And I just couldn't understand how. And then um, I think a lot of that is because, you know, the more we are separate from another, meaning the more we don't have to be in meaningful relationship, we don't really have to build empathy for one another. And we then, we, because we're so separate, we don't have to feel what it, what it, just the proximity of what it feels like right. to, to be undergoing such, such pain that is imposed on you a member of, of society that has been historically marginalized. Like this is not the child's fault who was born into a city that it has been historically disinvested in. It is not their fault, but yet their future most likely is limited because of these systemic inequitable policies. Right. So we got to get out of ourselves and reshape these systems that are crushing people. Right. And that's what you're doing. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm doing it with people. It's not, it's not just me. <laughs> of course. Does it make sense to move on to your health journey? Oh, you know, that's a, that's a natural transition. Cause that's what happened. So I did all this amazing work with, in, with community and folk and my body just shut down. I can imagine that, that the intensity of that visceral experience, I, I, I don't know how you maintain that or how one maintains that. Oh, I, I didn't. And I had never been through that before. I mean, I had never pushed myself that hard, which is also part of the excitement. Cause I was like, oh my gosh, what could be possible if we, if we maximize our potential as a, as a human, like force, like a force of human beings that are all focused on one thing, you know, and in this case, it was education funding to support, you know, the well-being of teachers and students and buildings that have been crumbling. And it's very interesting how the body works. So my body waited until all, after all this work was done. And in my last year of law school, it decided to say, uh-uh, can't do it no more. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm laughing because I'm also releasing tension that is still residual from that experience in my, my life. Like <laughs> you got to get it out. And that's what I learned. I was like, Oh my goodness, I need to reinvest in my well being because I was, I was practicing yoga and meditating, but I was doing it in a way that was um, inconsistent. Let's just say that right. inconsistent. And in what ways was your body screaming at you? To change? Uh, well, the first sign or the first presentation of, hey, 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 pay attention, please. We have to carry you through this life and you're hurting us, me. I don't know. But I, see, I'm already getting caught up in like, in what? What is the body? <laughs> the expression of? I'm, so, I'm, yeah, I'm very comfortable with multiple selves. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I like switch tenses and uh -huh. uh, subjects. Anyway, so. I'll never forget, I was surfing for the first time in Costa Rica and I was with my buddies in law school and we were like, oh, we just finished our, our year together. We're almost done. We got one more and we're surfing and it's so much fun. And I'm literally on top of the surfboard surfing. Finally got up there. Like, so everyone was like, 
going crazy. Which is and a big I, deal. Like that's a very special moment. Huge deal. So hard. Like, oh my God, you got up there. And I'm I'm going and I'm balancing and I'm moving. Yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, my yogi powers. I'll never forget that first feeling. <laughs> it's exhilarating. <laughs> it's like, it just clicked. Yeah. And and as soon as I get up there to that moment, I can't see out my left eye. Hmm. That's scary. Now I gotta figure out how to get off this thing. Anyway, it's hard with both eyes, with one. And I, I'm like, what the? I can't see. So I get off gracefully enough where no one notices that I'm having trouble seeing. And what, I, what happens is that out of my central vision, it becomes very blurry and foggy. And, and everything kind of melds together. So I don't see any forms of, of anything, outlines of anything. It's blurry and foggy and cloudy. And it's really hard to navigate the world that way. I thought maybe I needed new contacts. That's what I thought. Mm -hmm. I get home a week later, a week, because I was in Costa Rica. I, and I thought I just needed contacts. And I see an optometrist who then doesn't even say, you're in trouble or this is wrong. He just looks at me blankly and says, do you have time to see another specialist or to see a specialist? And I said, yeah, sure. He goes, okay go to see them right now. They're available for you. Like no one, he didn't tell me what was going on. I go to see the specialist who then says, similarly, I'm going to send you somewhere else. They close at six. They're making an exception for you. Can you get there in 30 minutes? And I'm like, what is going on? But you know, you just in the eye of the moment, you just go. Mm -hmm. I get to the specialist and I have a blood clot in my central retinal vein between my, my brain and my eye. It's a blood clot. It is so large that it has impaired the way my eye takes in visual information. It's behind the lens, the damage, and it's hemorrhaging. Mm. We don't know if it's on the move or not. It's huge. And the doctor was like furious at me for taking so long to see them. And I'm like, I didn't know what I had. I just couldn't see. He goes, uh, we're going to do a series of treatments. Your eyesight could get better or could continue to deteriorate and we have no idea because you waited so long to see us mm, how'd that feel scary and also you're i felt like i was being assigned responsibility for something i didn't really know mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. that was the first presentation i had to wear eye patch eye injections oh, oh my god i had to fight for a fight fight for accommodations in law school to finish up and fight for accommodations to take the GRE because I, I wanted to get my doctorate right after law school. And I think it made it, the fight was so hard because people didn't, didn't, I don't know if they really believed me that I had a disability. Like I couldn't see because hmm. I looked fine, but I couldn't see. Right. That was the first thing. And then like six months later, uh, I, I noticed a tumor. I, I thought it was just like, I don't know. I just making up excuses, I guess. I no, see now I'm blaming myself. I don't know. There was a tumor uh growing attached to my uterus and uh I had to go in and get that removed. It was ten times the size of my uterus, but nine. Wow. Yeah. That's massive. It was massive and I'm almost five two. I it was the same size as a five month fetus. Hmm. And then recovering from removing that, I mean it just happened like months after months, like just so much more recovery time and pain. 
um, I noticed a lump in my chest uh, above my heart, went in to get it seen by the same doctor who had just removed the other tumor and they sent me to another specialist. It was a tumor benign, thank goodness, in my chest over my heart. <laughs> and that happened within six months, like those three incidences. Hmm. So you're in full crisis mode at, at the moment, crisis slash survival mode. And I'm not even, it's, it's, you say crisis, I wasn't even responsive. I was just like, mm -hmm. okay, what do I have to do? I think I was uh, like, numb isn't even the word. It was, okay, what do I need to do to survive? Okay. Like taking orders, like, yep, let's go. What do we need to do? And on the couch recovering, I was in my late twenties. I said, oh, I will never put myself in this situation ever again. I will listen and honor my body and what, what they need, it needs, the body needs. And I'm also going to more purposefully choose how I spend my time in this life because I very close to, to not to not having the quality of life that I had grown accustomed. And that was one of the many turning points, but the most central turning point for me in my health and dedication of purpose, even more so in life. Were you also addressing perfectionism? at the time? Oh, that's what had to go mm -hmm. partly, like part, partly me ignoring my body's signals that I need the rest. And the other part was disrupting this cycle of internalized capitalism. Like mm -hmm. I had to produce, I had to produce mm -hmm. or I was not valued, meaning right. I didn't get the opportunity or, and I wasn't, I, I couldn't financially support myself unless I kept producing and producing and producing. And that took a toll on me. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I'm not the only one. That perfectionism comes from walking into spaces and, and people, frankly, not really given a damn who I am until they hear about my credentials. Mm -hmm. I, I had fixed it in my mind as though if I do all this work, you can ignore me. And that is actually tr partially true when I meet people, like sure. they can't ignore my presence. But that doesn't mean I need to sacrifice myself. Yeah. Yeah. Perfectionism is a, is a vicious one. You know, it, it wasn't, you mentioned capitalism and uh, it wasn't until someone introduced me to Tema Okun's work on white supremacy culture. And, and she lists just a number of, of traits slash characteristics. I think, uh, I hope I'm not misrepresenting it, um, of white supremacy culture that, that can affect, um, anyone of, of, of whatever racialized identity um, and perfectionism is one of them. And I wrestle with perfectionism in my way. I'm not in any way creating an equivalency between the, the two of us in terms of how I've navigated perfectionism and how it's shown up in my life. I mean, gosh, I remember being 14 and applying to get into a school that I knew would change my life. It's uh, called the McDonough School. It's very well-resourced school, and um, education is top-notch in the region. It's known nationally for its academic rigor and um, athletic success, and just the options and doors that being a McDonough student would provide. Like I knew that at 14 when I applied and took the test to get in and knew that my life would be different 
And so there was no safety net. Like I needed to get in yeah. because I knew life was going to be different for me. And so I, I worked my tail off to get to the point where I could even be competitive enough to get in at 14. Mm. Like that's the level of pressure. I mean, and that pressure extends beyond 14 because I had to get to that point that I was aware and cognizant of in myself because I saw a pathway that I, I wanted to be on and I wanted to have options. And when my body gave out in my 20s, that was the boiling point of that pressure that had been building at least for 15 years. Right. As a black girl in Baltimore City, in and around. Yeah. The body remembers. I'm sorry that happened to you. That was your journey and experience. Yeah. I, uh, that's also why I'm doing this work because I know what it's like to be fueled by not wanting to be ignored and discounted and without options. I know what that feels like. And I know the journey I took to finally realize that's all bullshit. And you don't have to self-sacrifice to create the life that you want. The life that you want that you can be, you know, in control of as much as possible outside of, um, you know, external factors like racism, sexism, genderism that keep opportunities from you. And it doesn't, you know, it, the life I was living didn't have to be like that, but I didn't see any other way. I grew up watching people just work really, really, really hard um, to counter a lot of the to counter a lot of the inequity that they came up against through no fault of their own. And I, you know, with this 2021 opening um, of awareness and people, you know, being curious about maybe there's another way that we can live together and structure our system so that we don't have to sacrifice ourselves to have decent health care, adequate housing, nourishing food, and a work-life balance that doesn't steamroll us into an early grave. You have three words on your website, just in the middle of the page in large font. It says, well-being is activism. <laughs> so it sounds like you learned that through that crisis and set of crises um, that were there and uh, you know, are ever-present systemically, culturally, uh, that you navigated to a place where you began to understand the amount of and, and frequency of inner work that you needed in order to be well-resourced, to be in a position to be useful to yourself and, and to the world. Is that accurate? I learned the hard way. I did through my organizing work and advocacy work i've learned quite directly you have to prioritize caring for yourself your well-being is just as purposeful as the organizing work that you are leading because if you aren't well you can't organize and 
it really freed me up. Like, I don't always have to be on the front lines, putting my body in harm's way, using my body as a medium for change. Like, I said, there is another way for me to be supportive where I don't have to put my body on the line, knowing that in the midst of a global pandemic, because of all the health journey journeys that I have gone through, I'm definitely susceptible to uh, getting, not just getting COVID, but being seriously, seriously impacted by COVID later on. And so I, I turned to my writing, like my writing was a way for me to be supportive and continue to amplify the work as opposed to putting my body on the line. And that is activism too. Like mm -hmm. caring for yourself is a form of well-being and activism. Now, I am not speaking to people who have advantage and can stay at home and not do any additional work or collaboration with people to change systems and live a well-balanced life free, mostly free of oppression. I'm not talking to you if you're listening. Like, we need you to get out there. Like, I this cannot be shouldered on people from communities who have been historically marginalized. We need you to get out there. But to the folk who have been doing this work and from communities who have been historically marginalized, we do not have to continue to self-sacrifice. Like it is okay. It is okay to honor your well-being and center your vitality because we need you and you need you on the other side of this. mentioned writing your june 2020 post in elephant journal is a wonderful example of of what you just described what inspired you to write that article and what was the response mm -hmm. i wrote the piece amplify black voices yoga you can do better and i posted it in elephant journal I was inspired to write the piece because in the moment, I mean, June 2020 was hot, hot. You could not escape the level of consciousness and awareness around inequity. And if you did, or if you tried to, I asked you to look at that. I wrote a piece that I knew someone who had who has been trying to distance himself from the heat could come back to and look at and use to look at themselves and their actions. I also wrote the piece as a way of making sense and also a way of collecting so many experiences that have led to the level of awareness and consciousness that we are, we are witnessing, still witnessing in 2021, and we're witnessing in 2020. And it was important for me to include voices of folk who have been doing the work to change systems and support the well-being of folk who are trying to change systems. It was important that my voice was not the only voice. And I realized, okay, 
my my writing in this publication can also uh, reach many many people, and that's been the reaction. It's led to um, lots of opportunity for myself and others who are involved in writing the piece, and those who have been on the other side and reading the piece to do the work to really change the systems that we've set up that are supposed to be for well-being, but in effect have been harming people along the way by not being inclusive and um, just like empathetic. I mean, just, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot in that piece. We could spend a few hours just unpacking that that piece. It's wonderful. I'll, I'll post it in the show notes. I may read a section from it, if, if that's okay with you. Uh, but before I do that, I, you did a wonderful interview with Quentin Venny. I just love that interview. I'll also put, post that in the show notes. And in that, you had mentioned that you move through the world with your community organizing brain on. And you know it's clear that that's the case in this article as well. And I'm, I'm trying to transition here to your experience in going to your first yoga classes, you know, post or during your, this this long health journey crisis, and you say in that amplified Black Voices Yoga You Can Do Better article, you say without a doubt, I can tell you that I would not have accessed the depth of growth I experienced as a practitioner and teacher if I were in a predominantly white yoga studio and with studio owners who had not started the internal reflective work to unearth how their conscious and unconscious actions perpetuate anti-black racism. I've had to wade through too many microaggressions and gaslit spiritual bypassing waters while practicing yoga in this black body with tightly coiled hair. Hmm. (sighs) Oh, that is such a painful, painful sentence. And I knew I needed to write it. And ah, oh, the fact that you chose that that sentence to read <laughs> lets me know, yeah, girl, keep it in there. Like keep the truth in there, no matter how painful it is to to write it. It's got to come out because it's going to be felt. I'm sorry to call up something painful. Yeah, well, I've I've agreed to do this work. Like I have consented to doing this work and that that purpose for me was very very strong uh, back in my, you know, early moments of healing. So it's important that, you know, when doing the, this kind of relational development work to have people care more and more about each other so we can change systems that have been harmful. We got to do the work with people who are willing and who have also consented to do it. So it's cool for me to go there. I mean, I put myself out there. I, I write hard. I don't hide truth, but I've also chosen to do that. Not everyone wants to take on that, that work. And so we, we, shouldn't for, we shouldn't force people to do that. So I'm comfortable with that. I'm, I'm fine with it. Secondly, what's worked for me is to get close to what is underneath my pain. So when I see pain and struggle in my life, I get closer to it. I go, what's going on? I journal. 
I write. I I'm in dialogue with with folk to to unearth like what what's going on um, in my sphere where this is showing up. And so my writing and my writing that sentence was to bring people who are consenting and willing and want to do the work closer. And I think a helpful tool for those wanting to do the work. I mean, there's so many out there, but I would add your audio documentary, actually both of your audio documentaries, both higher purpose and ahimsa to that tool set. I don't know if we have time to get into higher purpose. Uh, it, that also, um, resonated strongly with me. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, but let's move on to it, to the Ahimsa documentary. For sure. I, I love, I, by the way, I love creating audio docs and, uh, thank you for putting them in the show notes. Cause I just, I like creating and I'm creating from a place of, of love and, um, empathy. And so it doesn't feel like I'm producing to produce like it did before I got really, really sick and had the realization to take care of me. So yeah, go ahead and check out Higher Purpose if you're interested. It's a limited series audio documentary about an organization that is lean and, and doing the work in Baltimore City around job development for and with people who have been incarcerated. And it's called Higher Purpose. Go ahead and check it out on Baltimore's NPR station, WYPR. Right. And I think the organization you're talking about, shout out to Turnaround Tuesday. Shout out to Turnaround Tuesday. Absolutely. Yes. That's it's beautiful. <laughs> okay. So Ahimsa, you know, to listen to that, I, I would imagine that, and I haven't spoken with other teachers or studio owners about this, but I'm, I'm imagining that it probably was a moment of reflecting back to certain individuals, or organizations, aspects of unconsciously moving through life in ways that they hadn't thought as well as being exposed to and having the opportunity to hear stories by those who are having very painful experiences and the vulnerability that they share or the vulnerability with which they share in the piece or in the pieces, the four chapters uh, is, is very powerful and impactful and you know, I'm smiling because I, I just think it's wonderful that you, you put this art out into the world as, as a tool for, you know, those who want to learn more about what's really going on. Yeah. And I also see it as, um, as a deep, deep honor to folks who have been on the journey supporting people through their suffering, especially Black people. No one can write of our experiences like we can. And given the years, generations we have lived through, and this one year we have gone through, 2020, I wanted to make, I wanted to make a powerful, powerful piece that will withstand time so that when we want to remember, we can with these pieces that I have been part of creating. Speaking of which, do you mind if I read two, two pieces, two sentences? Okay, the first, sure. first one is from chapter two and the second one's from chapter four. And this, this is you speaking. I could have chosen many excerpts from, from your, your guests, but I wanted to personalize this uh, to you. Uh, you said, expressing our very real experiences 
is not low vibrational, judgmental, or negative. We are courageously sharing what clearly is with no room to look away. See and stay with the truth. I'm tired of this. We're tired of this. We practice yoga to be well, not to be re-traumatized. And then in chapter four, you say, in the midst of anti-black racism and the harm you've witnessed, how are you creating a sanctuary space of healing and peace? Yeah. You feature a lot of black teachers and black studios. Are there any that you'd like to promote in this episode that, to direct people towards any, any online classes that um, either that you, you yourself are teaching or, or others that you'd like to mention in this, in this episode? I know there are many. They are all of the folk who are part of Ahimsa give, deliver powerful experiences. And so I took very, very intentional space in each description of the episodes to list who they are, who you are hearing from. And in the series description, I list everybody because mm -hmm. I want you all to know where else you can support and go. And additionally, and additionally, in the Elephant Journal piece, Amplify Black Voices, Yoga, You Can Do Better, I have a whole offering of folks who are doing amazing, amazing, and leading amazing, amazing work in the yoga and meditation space. And there's also a list of other studios across the country you can support. So when I create my art, I make sure that people can find other folks outside of me to support in the work. And I wouldn't want to name just one or two because everyone, I mean, I wouldn't, I would not have chosen them to be part of my work if I didn't think they were, they were part of the work. And there's so many others um, that I'm looking forward to working with as I continue to create more art. So please go to those pieces and really um, comb through the, the series descriptions and the, the episode descriptions and also the article so that you also know where you can support. Yes. Please go check those out. And that makes me think of, yeah, there's an interview you gave on the off the strength podcast and those guys were awesome. There are three, I think there are three of them. So I don't, I can't provide the name of who said this, but you know, one of the things he said in the course of the conversation was that it's hard to check yourself at the door when you're wearing it on your skin. And, oh, that was such a good line. Yes. And, and that's what I was thinking about as the guests in your audio documentary were sharing their experiences about being in, in spaces that were predominantly white or white centered. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I enjoyed my time um, in conversation with the fellas at Off the Strength. Shout out to them. Uh, they're doing some amazing work and creating some real sound art in, um, in, at the intersection of wellness and, and, and black community. That line speaks to what I shared at the beginning of our conversation together. It speaks to the pressures that I felt. It speaks to the awareness I developed of the world around me and how it reacts to me in this skin and in this hair that I have no control over. I mean, part of the reason why I worked so hard and I, and I, I realized what part of that underneath was stemming from was 
I'm going to be in a world, I'm going to be in a world, I'm going to be in spaces where people are not necessarily going to share opportunity. And because of the skin I'm in and the hair I have, opportunities might be taken away. And so when I speak about, oh my God, being in yoga studios that are white centered with instructors who could be white and have not done the work, the bypassing of harm in the name of, oh, do all this eternal work doesn't really work. And it doesn't really show up as genuine because you're forgetting that a lot of the issues of which I am being forced to face is because of inequities that have been set up to take away opportunity and options based on what I look like by people who refuse to do the work and ask themselves why. So it's kind of hard in that phrasing that you just mentioned, it's kind of hard to do the work when what's showing up as a problem is your being and there's nothing you can do to change that. And why would you? Because what is wrong? What is so wrong with being black? Yeah. There isn't anything, by the way. No, absolutely. There's nothing. <laughs> and that is, what, that is what I want people who listen to my work, who read my words, to ask of themselves. Why are you moving in a way that says that this way of being that we are born with, with this skin and this hair, is wrong? And how are you practicing anti-Black racism in your everyday life? I mean, from the minuscule, the thing that you don't think that is important, you know, overlooking an opportunity and giving it to one of your buddies because eh, you're just more comfortable with them. That's implicit bias. That's implicit racial bias. Like where, where are you in your livelihood looking at yourself and asking, why do I see this being as wrong? And where did I get that from? Mm -hmm. That's a critically important part of the work. Uh, you know, we recently had Professor Rhonda McGee on the GLOW podcast. We discussed the inner work of racial justice. As you were speaking just now about implicit racial bias, I was also thinking about James Baldwin's work and specifically about the intersection of the white person's fear of inner demons and love. And I was thinking about passages in his book, The Fire, next time where he says white people are still trapped in a history that we, I say we because I'm white, uh, that we are still trapped in a history we don't understand, that until we understand it, we can't be released from it, that not until white people like myself learn to accept and love ourselves at the inner level, will there be liberation. And he says that the price of liberation of white Americans is the liberation of black Americans in both law and mind. And the last point I want to highlight, he says, you know, vast amount of the energy that goes into what we call the black problem is produced by the white man's profound desire not to be judged by those who are not white, not to be seen as he is. And at the same time, a vast amount of white anguish is rooted in the white man's equally profound need to be seen as he is, to be released from the tyranny of his mirror. And then a few, a few sentences later, 
He says, it is for this reason that love is so desperately sought and so cunningly avoided. Love takes off the masks that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within. And he makes the extra point that by love, he means not in the infantile American sense of being made happy, but rather in the tough and universal sense of quest and daring and growth. So in addition to the many changes to laws, systems, institutions, mass incarceration, education, and so much more in, in this country, you know, us white people have a lot of inner work to do, and I include myself in that. Absolutely. I think of, oh, James Baldwin's brilliant, brilliant mind being. And um, frankly, I, I think of the one line that he says, I'm not your Negro. Mm -hmm. Like that is a concept that has been created. And you got to ask yourself why. But you do that work and know, I am not what you have created. Right. Like you need to get closer at whatever it is that made you create the concept that you are now now putting on me. Right. Because I I'm not it. Right. We're we're all racialized in terms of our identity in, in some form or another, and that um, some of us have more work to do than others. And but yeah, is there anything else you'd like to say about that? That that's what I was going to say. Um, I was going to say you know we are a product of the generations before us and the systems they have set up to create equity and create inequity, depending on who you are and uh, what kind of comforts you've become accustomed to receiving because of your membership in this um, racialized identity. And so it is on members with the racialized identity that has been afforded and given so much opportunity and advantage, <laughs> unearned, to look at that. Like, you got to look at that. Right. And it, 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 it's, it's, it's white folk. It's also folk that benefit from the system that is based on anti-Blackness. So it is also people of color who have been benefiting from practicing anti-Black racism. So I'm saying it's a, a lot of people got to do a lot of work and um, <laughs> that's how we're going to get, we're going to get closer to why we are the way we are with other people and start seeing each other as beings and not separate from ourselves. That's right. <laughs> I mean, look, I'm, 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 my work is never done. Yes. I am. I'm a black woman and I'm also a black woman that has, advantage because of my education background. I got to look at that. I got to look at how those advantages are showing up in a way that could be perpetuating inequity. I have to be cognizant. You got to be aware. Constant. It's constant. It's moment to moment. I heard you allude to in another interview, your next audio documentary. Ah! Oh, you are so good with the research. Ah. Can you tell us a I bit about it? it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I love, I love sound art. It combines my love of writing and being in fellowship with people with also 
the texture of voice and emotion. I prefer to hear people's words said by them. Mm. And so audio documentary making allows for all those ingredients to be immersed in what then becomes, you know, the final piece. And so my next work is going to be about Black life, because so much of our little screens and our big screens are inundated with Black death. People at the end of their time here on this earth, especially people who are at the end of their time on this earth at the knee, forearm, and lethal aim of state-sanctioned police brutality. And so I want to write about life and light. And I want to write about the work at the beginning of one's journey here. And I want to write about the people who are supporting the people giving birth to that light. And so my next piece is called Daughters of the Yam and the Mothers They Become. And it is about the beginning of Black life and the doulas, the midwives who support that life into this world. So right now I'm in the phase of writing it. And so if you are a doula, a midwife, a mother who will be giving birth, if you are a funder, if you are a patron of the arts, you got to reach out to me and be part of this project. I mean, how can they find you? Yes, <laughs> you can find me at my website, www.yasmeenmumby.com. Y-A-S-M-E-N-E-M-U-M. B-Y. What was it that drew you to seek out a yoga class? I was incredibly burnt out. <laughs> I was a seventh and eighth grade social studies teacher who was moving into this field of community organizing, and I wasn't taking care of myself. That was the first, the first entry. Uh, to my wellness journey. And a friend of mine said, you know, you might want to try, you want to try this out. I didn't know what yoga was. I had never seen anyone really practice it, or <laughs> I didn't really see folks who look like me practicing it. And I happened to find a donation-based studio outside of Baltimore City, just outside, like 20 minutes. And I thought, oh, this could be yoga, because in that space, it was intergenerational multiracial and ethnic, lots of different um, types of people from all walks of life, different genders, and I did not feel othered. And so because I was in a studio where I could be and not be othered, I continued to practice and I dove into it. That carried me through and I, and I was made more aware of how much more attention I need to, to pay uh, to my body when I got to the end of that journey as a community organizer, when my body said, you really need to pay attention now, like more so than before. Do you come across people as you're sharing your experience with yoga, either the physical practice of yoga or, or more the philosophical journey into what that word means, a resistance or a, well, that's just stretching. That's not for me. I don't need that stuff. A, do you encounter that? And B, what's your response typically? 
I don't really attract people like that to my classes. <laughs> <laughs> the people that come to my classes know I'm about what I'm about. Um, I'm about getting you to a point, a place where you can support yourself to find ease. And clearly, whatever is going on before you sign up for my class, you, you're realizing you need something to support you. And this could be a journey. This could be a way. Is it just stretching? Well, why don't you go ahead and try stretching like after run or a walk and, and see if it actually changes or shifts the way you are in relationship to others and yourself. I say, try it. Because mm. um, if it doesn't, then what we're doing isn't stretching. And come on over and check out my class and see if that's what you feel. That's right. I like that challenge. <laughs> <laughs> How, how do you define self-care? Mm, how do I define self-care? It is not possible to define it. It is only something that I have had to experience to understand the value of and cultivate a deeper appreciation for. At the center of that is creating space to move with ease in my life and relationships. And that is caring for myself and others in the process. I can't put it into, and I'm, yeah, I can't put it into a phrasing, a definition because coupled together, self and care has been so decoupled. <laughs> and monetized to the point where reducing it to a definition doesn't really encompass what it could feel like when you actually do take the time and prioritize yourself and care. I had to learn that. I had to learn that. And through the course of our conversation, threads of that deeper appreciation are present and that's what care is for me but everyone's different everyone has had their own journey and path that's beautiful for someone listening who may be stuck confused not knowing where to start where do you recommend someone start mm. to tap into what you just shared mm -hmm. What started for me in a quiet moment of surrender, I was recovering from two tumor removal surgeries and treatments to regain my eyesight. That is what created an opening for me to surrender and ask, is there another way to do this? Is there another way to live where I don't have to self-sacrifice? And if there is, can I be open to it? So if you're just starting, honor yourself with the time to ask yourself those questions. Is there another way to live where you are not self-sacrificing? And are you open? See what comes from those two questions in your moment of stillness, quiet, no judgment, 
surrender. See what comes up and then go from there. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you. How is the interconnectivity between your own self-care and care for our planet evident in your life? And in what ways do you connect with our planet and how have those connections deepened your desire to protect and preserve our environment? We are sourced from Earth and we will return back to Earth. How we care for ourselves and the reverence that we hold for our planet shows up in the daily moment to moment interactions with other beings. And so it is essential that we cultivate the space for intention around our actions with each other and with our environment. Because if you can look at the earth as an extension or a different form of life connected to you, then you're going to be less likely to destroy it and to do things that would harm it. However, if you're in a space where you are quite consistent in harming elements of your livelihood that support your vitality, then it might be harder to see the value in supporting life as it is in and around you. And so I think the first, no, not I think, I feel that the first step is to really check in with self and all actions emanate from how you are with you. That was beautiful. That was so lovely. Thank you. Thank you. I think that's a wonderful place to end. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Mumby. (gasps) Thank you, Derek. This was really cool. And thank you for all of the hours you spent listening and writing and reading and preparing for these conversations. Thank you. You're welcome. I feel that the guest i.e. you, and the listener deserves that level of preparation. I I don't want to waste their time. I don't want to waste your time. I know. (laughs) I know that feeling. (laughs) And sprinkle in a little bit of perfectionism and everything we discussed about perfectionism, and there you go. (laughs) It never never goes away. You're just more aware of it, and you go, okay, do I really need that? Okay, I don't need to do it this time. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find The Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills. Derek Mills.